Welcome in to the At The Yard podcast. Today's guest is University of Washington assistant coach Ronnie Prettyman, who breaks down how his time away from the game after his pro career gave him the itch to get into coaching, the success he's experienced as a coach. We'll take a deep dive into recruiting at the University of Washington and all that it has to offer. All that and much more on episode 55 of the At The Yard podcast. Welcome back to the At The Yard Podcast. Really excited about today's guest, Ronnie Prettyman from the University of Washington joins me. Ronnie, how you doing, buddy? Thanks for joining the podcast. Hey, doing well, Les. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, man. So, you know, like everybody else, uh, you know, I got to imagine it's the first time in a long time for you. You're not on a ball field this time of year. You know, what sort of things you doing to keep yourself busy and, you know, what's it been like for you? Yeah, it's, you know, it's definitely been different for, for all of us that are in this profession. Um, it's been nice, though. You know, I've had a lot more family time than I've ever had, especially this time of year. So, you know, I, I got two young kids, so it's been fun. We've been able to do some family hikes up here in Washington and enjoy some of the stuff that, uh, to be honest, I hadn't really taken advantage of in the state uh, since I got up here. So uh, that part's been, you know, kind of nice. And and obviously, uh, you know, being around a lot is uh, different for, for, for all of us. So um, tough times, but we're definitely trying to take make the most of it and you know, hopefully I, I won't have this much free time in the future ever again. So, uh, but for right now we're, we're trying to, you know, embrace it and try to do as much stuff as a family as we can. Yeah. The, the family time certainly is the, the silver lining for, for not, I mean, not only coaches, but you know, for us as well. And, you know, being able to spend some time with them is awesome, but you know, let's, let's jump in, man. You're, you're a SoCal guy, Ronnie. I mean, you, you know, through and through, you played your high school ball at Los Al and, uh, spent a year at Cerritos College, and you know what was the what was the thought process for you, uh, or what was the you know was it a lack of opportunity, or what is it that led you to Cerritos College after uh, prepping there at Los Al? Yeah, you know, I, I was I was kind of I was a two sport guy. Um, I played basketball and I, I played baseball, and actually, I, I really thought that my future was going to be in basketball until probably closer into my senior year. And it was a different time back then, so guys weren't getting recruited as young, and um, you know things were a little different with how how that all went. Um, so yeah, I didn't have much opportunity, and and kind of got some scout interest as a senior at Los Al. Uh, we had a good team, won the Sunset League, and um, you know didn't have any offers to go to a Division One school. I had some Division Two schools and and NAIA and Division Three schools that wanted me to play both um, basketball and baseball. But kind of took the opportunity to kind of sit back and reevaluate, you know, what I wanted to pursue moving forward. And Cerritos and Coach Gaylord gave me a great opportunity uh, to head in there and, and try to advance as a player. And, you know, I went from a guy who essentially had no chances and no, no opportunities to a highly recruited junior college player. Um, and, you know, it was definitely the right move for me to, to have that experience and go that direction. Uh, you know, as much as I wanted to go somewhere right out of high school, uh, the, the best route for where I where I ended up going was definitely the junior college route. 
Yeah, and and you hear a lot of guys that played multiple sports. You know, they say that it really helped them, right? Like the the skills and 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 just kind of the the memor- the muscle memory that you learn from one sport can carry over to baseball. Do you do you find that to be the case for you? Uh, you know, and how did playing basketball help you in your baseball career? Well, yeah, I mean, growing up and playing soccer too, and then playing football in Pop Warner, and then into my my high school career, I didn't I didn't play that all four years, but. I did play, you know, all three for a while. Uh, and then basketball, you know, every sport kind of for these guys can kind of develop a different skill and a different skill set. And, you know, it might have hindered my, you know, my growth as a high school player in baseball. But I think ultimately, uh, you know, as I started focusing more on baseball, as I got to the college level, it definitely helped me um, to have the you know, the first steps that I, that I gained from playing a lot of basketball and, and, you know, the toughness that all, all kids gain from, um, playing football and then the footwork from soccer. I, I definitely believe that all those contributed to, um, you know, the, the success that I was able to have on the field. I'm glad you brought that up because you, know, you, you mentioned it may have hindered you as a high school player, but I mean, ultimately, you, know, you don't want to peak in high school, right? I mean, you want to keep going as long as you can. And you talked about being a highly recruited player at, at a Cerritos and you, know, you chose to stay home and, and play at Cal State Fullerton where you played for three years. And gosh, I mean, what a time to be at Cal State Fullerton. Uh, those three years, three straight supers, back-to-back Omaha trips, winning a national championship. I mean, that must have just been you, – you must have been on cloud nine. Yeah, as I get older and I'm in this profession and I realize just how special of a, of a time that it was when I was there, um, you know, it becomes more apparent that, you know, for us, you know, it was such a great time at that place that that was the norm. I mean, the norm was – Hey man, it's it's get to Omaha and make a run in a national championship, or it really wasn't a successful season, um, and that wasn't that wasn't a cockiness or an arrogance. It was just kind of more the standard that was set at that place, and and uh, that's the expectations were for all of us. And you know, I think as programs, everybody strives to have that expectation and standard. So it was definitely for I was fortunate to be a part of it. Um, I mean, there was an all-star staff of coaches when I was there, so being able to kind of grow and learn from those guys. Not to mention the outstanding players that I was around every single day. I mean, um, you know, we as players and as peers would would teach each other and learn from each other and compete against each other every single day, which you know is a special setting. But what, <clears throat> especially me not really focusing on baseball when I was younger and, and really knowing exactly um, what I was getting into when I got to Fullerton, I, I really looked at it as the norm. Uh, and and now that I can take a step back and I'm I'm separated from it, I, I look back and and just really feel fortunate that I was able to be there at that time. I got to share a story with you, Ronnie, because I was at Long Beach State when you were at, at, at Fullerton. And and the one thing, I mean, aside from you being a dirtbag killer for the most part <laughs> during your career there, what was what's the story with the announcer, man? Every time you came to the plate, he would announce your name like, you know, he'd go pretty man or something like that. You know, that always stuck with me. man. Was that something that that he just did on his own or, or something that you just kind of chuckled about? What was the story there? Yeah, you know, it's something that to be to this day when I'll run into scouts, especially guys that had that area when I was a player um, and then former coaches that were you know, he had coached against us. Everybody seems to remember that pretty, uh, it was a bright, it was, a, it was definitely something that they remember about going to those constant coaching games. And, and to be honest, I don't, I don't know where that came from. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, it was just something that he started doing. And then, and even, you know, 
even in the middle of the game, it was kind of like, hey, man, kind of calm it down here. <laughs> kind of take it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's you know for those that obviously never heard it, which is most people, um, he definitely just kind of uh, he gave me a good entrance every time I went up to bat. Yeah, you know, and, and, and as, you know, as a Long Beach State guy, I mean, you know, I'm sitting there and it just would just, it was like salt in the wound. And then, of course, you know, most of the time you would come through and it just like, just, ah, just compounded it, man. But that well, was pretty I, funny. I, I, you guys also, Long Beach had, I mean, that staff they had, uh, you know, was pretty incredible. So I think, yeah. I think uh, any advantage or, or uh, energy that the announcer could provide us, you know, when we're going up against Weaver and, uh, Alvarez and Ramos and Vargas and all those guys, man. I mean, they were trying to, he was trying to help us out any way we could. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. That, that was kind of the peak of that rivalry. I mean, I mean, it's a phenomenal rivalry, but those three, four years were just outstanding. But Ronnie, you know, Hey, in 2005, you know, at the end of your senior year there at Cal State Fullerton, um, you get drafted by the Mariners in the, in the 10th round. Now, did you have an opportunity after your junior year to play pro ball was with, with the draft or did you just decide, Hey, I'm coming back for my last year? Yeah. I mean, you know, we all go into this and we, we try to create opportunities for ourselves. to, uh, I think anybody that wants to play in the big leagues is trying to get into pro ball at the right time. Um, so, you know, I actually, my, my sophomore year, because my first year at Cerritos, believe it, I mean, I had a back surgery, so I, I didn't. I sat out for one year at Cerritos, and then I played, uh, and then so I was a uh, second-year freshman, and then going into Cal State Fullerton, my first year there, I was draft eligible, and um, you know, really didn't talk to many teams before the draft, but started getting calls the days of the draft, and and was a little bit caught off guard just because I didn't really think of it as a possibility at that time um, after my first year. Uh, so I, you know, it wasn't a hard decision to come back. But after my junior year, I was a fourth-year junior, and I was I was ready and I was prepared to go into pro ball. Um, that was my goal. I, I felt like I had I had done enough to um, be a prospect for those guys. And and to be honest with you, and a lot of guys who have been through this will experience this and and kind of have experienced it. But um, you know, I, I thought I was going to get drafted a lot higher as a junior, and I felt like I kind of slipped, and I wasn't sure why. We had just won the or we were on pace to win the national championship, and um, had a pretty successful season, uh, but I didn't. I went in the 28th round and um, just felt like it wasn't the right opportunity. I, we, By the time I was negotiating with the team, we had won a national championship and we had a really strong team coming back. And I just felt like it wasn't the right time for me to go into the draft or go into pro ball because, um, you know, really your opportunities come when they invest in you. And if they don't invest in you, then your opportunities aren't, you don't have many of them. So, I came back for my senior year, and uh, I mean, for me and growth, it was it was pretty incredible because I felt like even though my numbers weren't you know that much different, I felt like I uh, the game slowed down for me a lot. So coming back for my senior year was really beneficial, uh, just as far as just being able to really feel like nothing was fast for me anymore. So um, yeah, so I came back for my senior year and then went in the tenth round with the Mariners and went on to play for a few years. Yeah, you play, so you played five years. And, and what, I mean, was it injury? Was it just the decision of, hey, I got to get on with my life? I mean, you reached AAA. You, you spent some time in AA. Uh, you know, it seems like you were on pace uh, to kind of reach that ultimate goal. But what was it that, that ultimately uh, uh, had you walk away from the game as a player? Yeah. Well, you know, I was getting older. Uh, I think I was 27 when I when I got hurt. Um, 
so I was getting to that point in my career where it was it was kind of time to put up or shut up anyway. Uh, but I I did uh, in Double A about sixty four at bats into my last season in two thousand nine. I I dislocated my right shoulder on a swing. Um, and I was a right-handed throwing, left-handed hitting third baseman. So um, it was my throwing arm. It was my lead arm uh, swinging. And so I sublexed it and absolutely obliterated my, my labrum in the process. Uh, so I had surgery a couple months later. And um, after about a year of, of rehab and trying to get healthy and um, trying to get back into things, uh, it just wasn't there. I, I wasn't able to compete. So I got released by the Mariners, and I was just kind of – you know, I was tw- like 28, I think, when I got released and not healthy. So it was just kind of one of those things that kind of forced me to move on, which looking back, just the type of player I was and the person I was, I probably would have played less until they made me stop playing. So this was kind of, uh, you know, a way for me to kind of, hey, it wasn't my choice. I would have loved to have walked away from the game under my own, you know, merit and, and my own willingness to do so. But not everybody gets that chance, so um, it kind of forced me to move on, and I actually stayed away from baseball for about a year and a half. Um, it was too fresh; it was, too, it was still hurt too much. But uh, you know, I got the bug again, man, and and I went from a, a finance manager at a car dealership, which is where I was working after also getting my real estate license, to uh, to being the volunteer assistant in Indiana State, and uh, Rick Heller gave me that opportunity. And, um, you know, having that conversation with my wife at that time was, was awesome because she understood and knew what I was trying to do. So she said, Hey, you know, you got this good job and we have benefits and I don't have to worry about, you know, cause she was back in school. Um, and I said, Hey, I want to leave that to go be, you know, make no money and work for free and put in long hours and get back on a field. And she said, Hey, I knew it was a matter of time. So. That's that's awesome. That that that's really awesome. And when you guys when you get to Indiana State, you guys you guys had some success there, right? I mean, you reached the Eugene Regional there uh, in 2012. Uh, first regional Indiana State's been in since 1995. You know, you had you were working with hitters. Your hitters had a lot of success in your three years there. Um, at that point, did you? Did you know, hey, this is this is this is it, right? Like, I, I this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life, sort of deal. Uh, but, I mean, I mean, obviously, right? If you left a, a really nice, high-paying job or a well-paying job with benefits, but uh, I'm curious, while you were, was it while you were doing that job? Was it while you were rehabbing, while you were playing pro ball, or even back to your college days? Uh, you know, at what point did you decide, hey, I think coaching might be in my future? Um, you know, I, I never, I felt like I never really, um, defined that as my future, but I, I would say probably subliminally or, you know, in the back of my mind, I always knew that I was going to be involved in athletics at some point. You know, my dad growing up in our household, my dad was an administrator and, and had a great career doing that for a long time. Um, so it, athletics was always part of our family dinners. Um, you know, my mom was a music teacher, so you know, she taught band and choir. And so music was also a big part of our family. And so, you know, as far as like getting two different sides of two different things, uh, it was, it was, provided some balance, but athletics was always a big deal for us. Um, so I, I knew that I, I always wanted to be involved in that. Um, just because I love the competition. I love, I love the atmosphere. I love being around, um, you know, players and, and guys that really want to work. So, you know, it was probably in there the whole time. Uh, definitely uh, being away from the game was much needed for me after I got released. 
but getting back into it um, made me really be able to step back some days, especially those awesome days when you're out on the field and it's a great, you know, the weather's awesome and, and there's there's a buzz in the, in the stands. Just being able to kind of really embrace that and appreciate it. Yeah, so after Indiana State, you come home, if you will, right? You spent a year as a volunteer coach at Cal State Fullerton. Uh, was that just an opportunity to get back on the West Coast for you, or what was the thought process there for you? Yeah, that was a difficult decision um, because we had, you know, we had kind of considered buying a home in Terre Haute. Uh, I really liked working with Coach Hannes, who's the the guy who. Uh, took over for Rick Heller after he left and Brian Smiley, who's an assistant there is a really close friend of mine. And so I felt like we had a really good thing going. Um, but the opportunity to go back and, and be at my alma mater, uh, and, and learn from the guys that were around the program at that time. Um, you know, it was, it was an opportunity that I felt like, uh, I had to take and I had a supportive wife who, who we're both from from here, so it was a chance to kind of get back to where our roots were, and and her family's all out here, so kind of a kind of too good of an opportunity to pass up. I definitely wanted to be, um, you know, advancing in my career, and went from a paid assistant back to a volunteer assistant. Uh, but you know, I had the opportunity to get back to a, a program as story to Cal State Fullerton and be a coach there, and then make an Omaha run in 2015. So. Um, going from two regionals in three years at Indiana State and then getting to Cal State Fullerton and, and making an Omaha run was, you know, it was just, it was a fun ride uh, for the first four years of my coaching career. Yeah, and then after that, you, you get that paid assistant job at LMU where you spent three years. And, uh, you know, it seems like everywhere you've been, Ronnie, either as a player or as a coach, success has followed, right? I mean, we talked about you your, the success that you experienced as a player and, you know, two out of three years at Indiana State, you make a regional. You talk about the, the, the Omaha run there at Cal State Fullerton at LMU. I mean, magical season in your second year there. You know, you guys go 38 and 18, the first conference title since 2000. You're 20 and 7 in league. I mean, you know, six of your pupils, you know, your players there hit 300 or better. I mean, you're, you're riding pretty high at that point. I got to imagine, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I got into a, a situation at LMU with coach Gill and Bobby Andrews and Rick Ball and, and Matt floor. And then Brian Ward, who, who I took over for, who they'd done a great job of kind of setting the table with the players and the culture. Um, so stepping into that program at that time, uh, I just had to kind of, and provide what I can provide, um, you know, which I feel like is, I hope, good energy for these guys on a daily basis. And and the bottom line is I like to compete pretty much in everything that I do. And sometimes that can come off brash for some kids, especially when I first get to know them. But I enjoy, you know, I enjoy challenging them to be better. Um, and, you know, that's kind of how I go about my business. But, uh, yeah, you know, my, my time at LMU was great. I, I had a lot of responsibility that Coach Gill, you know, gave me. He let me um, have a lot of freedom to coach the way that I wanted to coach. And, uh, you know, another thing that I'm really proud of about that place is, is you know, they made that run and, and got to the regional and took UCLA real deep last year. And even though I wasn't there to be a part of that, I, I did feel like I had my hands in it because, um, you know, myself and the other guys on the staff, were involved in recruiting that class. So it was it was fun to see those guys have success and then get an opportunity at UW to go back and play against LMU to open the season. And, and um, you know, losing two out of three to those guys was, was tough. But at the same time, knowing that 
of most of the guys on the field I had a hand in recruiting. Um, you know, it was, it was kind of nice to see those guys and, and see that program in good hands with Coach Choate and and the rest of his staff. So, uh, yeah, yeah so, I had experience at LMU. Yeah, and then and then after that, you know, obviously to July 2018, uh, you know, you headed up to the Pacific Northwest there under Coach Meggs. Uh, he makes the call, and and you take the opportunity there at the University of Washington, where you are now. And what was that transition like for you? I mean, you, you know, we talked a little bit about being home, uh, you know, and, and being around your family or your wife's family here in, in the Orange County area, uh, you know, obviously pretty local uh, LMU. And then, uh, you know, at this point, uh, you know, you have a family and, and you know, you guys are, are picking up and moving on, uh, heading up to Pacific Northwest. So, I mean, was it a difficult transition for you or, or what was that like? I think the transition is always going to be a little difficult, but it wasn't a hard decision. Um, the decision was fairly easy. Uh, the opportunity to coach at a university like the University of Washington and being the Pac-12 uh, and the people that we get to compete against, you know, week in and week out. Um, it was kind of a, it was a fairly easy decision. Uh, I had spent time in the Northwest. I played a summer up here in Everett and I played a summer uh, in Tacoma in AAA. So we are, we're, are familiar with it. And, um, you know, the opportunity to kind of move to a different place that was still, it's still, you know, on the West Coast, it's an amazing city. Um, you know, it, it was it was too great of an opportunity for, you know, what I'm looking forward to doing in my career to pass up on. So the decision wasn't hard at all, um, but the transition is always going to be difficult. My kids are really young and they were, you know, especially when we moved up here. So that we didn't have to change schools or a lot of that stuff that a lot of families have to deal with. But, um, you know, moving is difficult. And uh, the longer we establish ourselves and, and the more places we live, we gather more stuff and we're actually in the process of moving again. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's been a great transition and, and move for my family. Yeah. And, and coach Megs, you know, a very successful coach, you know, when he was at Chico state and, you know, now has had a lot of success there at UW and, 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 you know, when you, I think you blend kind of, uh, you know, then coach, uh, uh, Kribbe there as well. I mean, I think when you kind of combine the three of you guys, it's, it's really, uh, it's really something else when it comes to recruiting, uh, where Washington has had a lot of success here under Coach Meggs, uh, particularly as it relates to Southern California and California as a whole. Uh, you know, you guys have some players coming in this year uh, who are you know very, you know, very talented players, very recognizable names. Uh, but let, let's talk about recruiting to Washington. I mean, beautiful facility there, the the new stadium, the Husky State uh, ballpark there. Uh, you can couldn't be uh, any nicer, right? I mean, it's it's beautiful. We resources wise, I mean, it makes it makes it tough for anybody to beat us. Uh, we're able to provide um, from facilities to uh, just you know the the perks of being at a place like this for our student athletes. We're able to provide things that a lot of schools can't. Um, and you couple that with the staff that Coach Meggs has put together and, and the guys that he's had work for him in the past and the, and the culture that he has and the work ethic that he has, um, it's definitely a, a great place to be. We we want to make sure that we don't um, lose guys in the state of Washington uh, without at least a fight. Uh, but on top of that, we're going to also go outside the state and go to places like California where it's as good a talent as anywhere you'll find in the country. And, and what we're finding, we feel like, is that we're going to be competitive uh, in this league with anybody. Um, so we've, we've been going head-to-head with 
other teams in the league and and we're going to make it tough on them so uh, you know just because we are in the northwest doesn't mean that we're not going to go in there and try to be in the mix on some of these guys from you know southern california or northern california or the center of the state or um even into other states nevada and arizona so we'll go nationwide we've got texas kids on our team as well um but yeah so we're gonna we're gonna stay stay home and try to get the best guys out of washington and ultimately know that we're trying to put together a roster that's gonna compete to go to omaha every single year and to do that we'll you know we're gonna supplement with that with great players out of california as well you, you know you mentioned when you were talking about the draft you know that opportunity comes when they invest in you and i i gotta imagine that that's a strategy or something that you implement into your recruiting um so when you are out recruiting what are what are some of the things you're looking for in players you know obviously everybody says we want athletes we want you know the best players uh, but you know, there's there's only a handful of those guys that that kind of fit that bill. So when you look beyond, you know, the the, the high level athleticism, uh, you know, or the or the, the quote famous end quote guys, you know, what sort of things are you guys looking for in players? Um, I know that my for myself personally, what I want to see is I I love guys that love baseball, and and that doesn't mean. Um, that they love showcases it, and that's not nothing wrong with that but that doesn't mean that they love to get the invites to you know all these different events uh what that means is they just they thrive and they have a presence about them when they're between the lines and i don't think that that's something that um that is easy to see all the time and so as i've kind of grown as a coach i've, I've learned to just kind of trust that when i see it and there's players that I think sometimes either maybe will be on or or I've been on in the past where people might say, man, that I, like, why is he like that guy so much? And and a lot of it can come down to, you know, if a kid is is in love with this game and is willing to put in the time on their own, uh, the sky's the limit for those kids. So uh, I think that that has to come first. It has to be more important. Um than how good the swing is or how strong the arm is. I think that you have to find guys that love this game and love to compete at this game. And if you get enough of those guys on the field together, you're going to win. So um, I, th- I think that that was the formula that was so successful at Fullerton. Uh, we looked at a team that was essentially had some blue chip guys, but uh, for the most part, it was just guys that really liked to compete, that were really athletic and, and were going to put extra time in the cage and and challenge each other on a daily basis. And um, I think that is always going to be the formula. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys out there that that they want to make sure their numbers are good. They want to make, make sure their metrics are good. Um, and that's really what they focus on. And then the game comes, and that's not the fun part for them. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's uh, the types of players that we want to recruit. You know, and you, and you see a lot of that, right? I mean, I'm sure you, you like most coaches are, are get to the ballpark early type guy. And, you know, that's really when you can see that, right? Like when a guy, see how a guy interacts with his teammates, see how he, you know, interacts with his coaches. Is, is he out there, you know, warming up with intent? Is he just kind of going through the motions? And, you know, I think that's a really important element of, of for players to, to understand. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think, you know, any coach that does this will tell you, you want to see how the guy is in the dugout. You want to see how he is with his parents and with his friends and how he treats people and how he respects umpires. Um, And that's something that 
you know, maybe not everybody does, but I, I, I'm pretty quick to cross a guy off the list if I feel like he's disrespectful and, um, because I know that that stuff festers and, and you can, you can train that a little bit, but for the most part, a lot of those kids, you know, the way they're raised is, is kind of what's instilled in, in them as important. And, um, yeah, we can bring a bunch of guys on that we're going to have to change, or we can just recruit guys that kind of fit what we're looking for. And, you know, for me, it's, it's how a guy looks at the pitcher when he's going to step in the box. Um, you know, it, it, it's uh, the competitiveness of that. It's how a pitcher uh, is ready to, you know, focus on getting the hitter out as opposed to focusing on his own mechanics and battling himself on the mound. Um, so, you know, that's a that's a thing that I think that you can pick up on if you're if you're really paying attention. Um, and and it's easier to pick up on that. You know, the reality is it's easier to pick up on that stuff the more experience you have and the more you've been around it. So. I feel like that's just something that I'm trying to get better at and continue to get better at every every summer and every fall that we're out recruiting. Yeah, and and recruiting, you, I'm glad you touched on it there on on the summer, right? I mean, it's it's such an important important part of the recruiting process, right? It, it, because obviously during the spring, you guys are with your own program, and and you may be limited in terms of views on players. So, you know, when players are are out in the summer, you know. There's so much going on during the summer. You know, how do you, as a as a D1 coach and a D1 recruiter, prioritize where you're going to be to you know to be out to recruit? I mean, are you looking for events that offer the most opportunity to see guys? You know, where there's a hundred games over the course of a week. You know, like some of the events that that, that take place out in Arizona. You know, are you a little more selective? Uh, what's that process like for for you? Um, yeah, I think that's kind of a it's kind of a moving target because I think it depends on where you're at with your future classes. And I know that for us last summer, the beginning of the summer was go out and see everything and see as much as you can at different places and try to expose yourself to different areas um, and different teams. Uh, and then as we kind of identified players, start to follow those guys a little bit more. Um, but I think this summer, you know, unfortunately right now, we're not going to be out for a while, but I think this summer would be, would have been a little bit more, Hey, let's be specific to our needs. Um, let's really focus on not just trying to go and watch everybody, but focus on guys that fit into where our needs are in the, in the future classes. Um, so I think that, you know, different programs are going to focus on different stuff based on where they're at, uh, with their future, future programs, like I said. So there was a lot of, um, trying to see a lot early uh, last summer, but that would have been different this summer. So that would be a, a different change right there. We also have um, a lot of guys that are, you know, that are verbally committed that have, that, that are, we would go and watch. We'd be trying to watch them because we feel like if we're recruiting the right guys, they're already going to be playing in the right tournaments uh, and they're going to have the right teammates on their teams. If we're recruiting the types of guys that are co- going to come in and be impact players. How much how much recruiting goes on after you get a verbal commitment? Because I've heard from guys that say, you know, it, it's one thing to get a kid to commit, you know, or, or have a kid commit. But, I mean, that's when the recruiting really starts is, is, you know, what some guys have told me. Do you find that to be the case where you're, you know, you're still recruiting guys until the, uh, you know, the ink is on the paper? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially in today's world where, um, you know, there's there's more – uh, flipping and floating around going on. I think that it's important that we 
show our guys that we've you know we've committed to and they've committed to us that we're still in on it and we want to keep up that relationship and make sure that they see us you know when they're when they have their starts as pitchers or they see us you know watching them when they're when they're hitting as position players so um it doesn't stop and 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 each guy's different i mean there's certain guys that you need to make sure that you're talking to more often because that's what they want and there's other guys that uh you know they're okay with checking out on them every two three weeks and making sure that they're you know they're doing all right and staying staying ahead of things in the classroom etc so i think it varies a little from player to player but yeah you definitely don't uh just just get them and then and then forget about them until they sign their nli that that is probably not a good way to go about it <laughs> yeah exactly the, that whole relationship piece and you continue to, to cultivate that and yeah, you know, i wanted to touch on this because we we mentioned it a little would, bit of real quick i would say too that uh, it's a great opportunity for you to um validate some of the things you liked about them and also challenge them you know if you already have a kid that said he wants to come to your place uh, if you have the relationship with them that you can challenge them and say, hey, I was at your game, man, and, uh, you know, what happened on this, uh, you know, this play, what were you thinking? Or, um, you know, why weren't you running on this play when you should have been? You should have been running harder. You could have got an extra base. I think that's an opportunity to kind of see how they react to that kind of criticism because uh, they have to understand that when they step on campus, it's not going to be, um, you know, just the, Hey, how's it going? You know, how's your girlfriend? How's your dog kind of conversation? It's going to be, Hey, we're going to, we're going to prepare you to be a better player and be a pro. So, uh, that can start earlier. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic point. And, you know, we touched on it a little bit when talking about your own recruitment, about how it was a little different then compared to what it is today. And, you know, you're seeing, it just seems to be getting younger and younger, uh, the whole recruiting process. And you know, I'm just curious on your take on that. You know, do you think that's something that is sustainable uh, for the game? I, I, I don't know, to be honest. I don't know if it is, Les, because um, I know for myself, physically, I matured late. So if you would have seen me, you know, as a 6'1", left-handed hitting 145-pound sophomore, uh, it probably wouldn't have gotten you know, too many looks or made too many people super excited. But, um, you know, as I got kind of grew into my body and became more of a physical player, uh, you know, it definitely was a big deal and, and people were more, you know, willing to take a second look at me. So, um, yeah, I, I think that a lot of this stuff is, is what we are, where we're at in the game. And what's going to happen is if teams continue to have success with it, it's going to continue. Uh, but it's it hasn't been long enough where it's been so young, in my opinion, that uh, we don't really know how it works out for teams. And I don't think there's anything wrong with – there's a lot of programs I know that don't want to go early on guys. Uh, they would rather wait and see a kid mature a little bit more. And if they miss out on guys, they're willing to take that uh, risk. But um, there's enough good talent out there, man. I, you know, I will say times have changed. When I was in high school – um, and I tell this to a lot of the old timers that talk about, you know, recruiting back in the day and how great of recruiters they were, because I mean, I, I was in, in Los Alamitos in Orange County in, in the, the Mecca of high school baseball and talent and being a first team, all Orange County, all sunset league, second team, all CIF shortstop that was left-handed hitting and, um, you know, could run. I didn't have any opportunities <laughs> and I guarantee you that that would not happen in this day and age, not with, you know, 
with places like PBR, with with um, you know all the all the avenues that people can get exposure, that would not happen in 2020. Yeah, that's that's really a, a fantastic point there, and and you see that just kind of that change in in recruiting, and it's you know it's one of those questions that comes up. Uh, you know, I mean, we hear it a lot from parents who. You know, they have a sophomore who's uncommitted and it's kind of they're pressing the panic button and you're just kind of like, man, slow down. If you know, if you're good enough, they'll find you sort of you know, mentality. Right. I mean, if you can play, they're going to find you. Right. I believe that I really do. Um, obviously, there's going to be some events or places that you're at or, or geographically where you're at, where it's going to be easier to get exposure. Um, but, yeah, I, I tell parents that. And, and the reality is. You know, if you're not, if everything doesn't check every box for you and your family and you haven't really taken time to evaluate the whole big picture uh, and, and just say, hey, this is the place for us, like, it's too big of a decision for anybody to rush into. Uh, it really is. It's it's too big of a decision. And that's something that I think as coaches, we're, we have to be responsible enough to understand that from their perspective as well, that it's not, um, you know, when we recruit, it's not it's not just us if we want them and if they're going to pick us, they have to interview us too. They need to get to know what the expectations are. They need to get to know what practice is like. Uh, they need to get to know, um, our personalities because, uh, there's schools in our league in the PAC 12 that are all very successful programs that you're going to get a different culture and a different attitude from each program. And if you're not, if you haven't educated yourself on, what's going to be the difference at program A versus program B um, on a daily basis and the expectations in the classroom and the schedule expectations, uh, you know, then, then you're not doing your job. I, I feel like as a, as a, a family that's trying to get recruited, you can't just go to the place that, you, you know, you're really excited to wear the sweatshirt. You got to make sure that's the right fit for you and your family. And we do the same thing on our end. We, we try to do our background and try to make sure that the kids that we are recruiting are kids that we want uh, to put our livelihoods on the line when they're in between the lines. You know what I mean? So every kid we recruit, that's our future, and that's my future, and that's Coach Kribbe's future, and Coach Meggs' future, and Joe Meggs, our volunteer. You know, all of us uh, want to make sure that we're bringing the right guys in, that if we're, if we're going to go down, we're going to go down with the guys that we feel like believe in what we believe in. You know, a couple of things you touched on there, culture and fit. And, you know, how what what is the culture around the program and what sort of things do you guys do to, uh, you know, develop that culture, you know, and ensure that that culture is 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 understood, most importantly, by the current players and ultimately by incoming players that you're recruiting? Yeah, well, first, I would say that. I've been fortunate to be around several head coaches now and work for different guys um, and and learn from different guys with different strengths uh, that, that are different have different personalities. Um, being up here at UW and kind of seeing the culture that Coach Megs and and his previous staffs and and current staffs continue to build, it's you know what we have going here in my opinion is uh, we think we're doing a, a a service to these guys to make them. Number one, better baseball players, but and this you know can sound cliche, but we're trying to turn them into men. I tell I tell the kids that I talk to, um, if you're if you're immature, you're gonna leave this place grown up. Uh, you're gonna the expectations are so high from our from our kids from the classroom standpoint, and they get all the support in the world. Uh, so their their job is essentially to be where they're supposed to be 
and and do the work that they're supposed to do and the expectations are that they do that um, and coach Meggs brings it every single day I mean the guy gets so excited about um, scheduling practice and making sure that we're going to be the most efficient with our time that we can be uh, and, and then the expectations once we get on the field are um, you need to do your job and do what you're supposed to be doing and if you're not then it's going to be a tough day for you I think that the biggest thing and, and you know everybody develops these reputations but the biggest thing you can expect from yourself is to be fair and if you're fair and, and you're only um, addressing you know kids and their issues when they deserve it, when they're not putting out the effort or when they're not focused or not thinking um, as clearly as they should, then then there's that's coaching and that's what it's all about. And now if you're if you're unfair and you're you're picking on kids or you're you know doing doing stuff that um, some kids don't deserve, uh, that's not that's not okay. Um, but I think that Coach Meggs does an amazing job of turning kids into men and making sure that they understand that their parents aren't going to do everything for them. Uh, we expect a lot from our guys. And I think that's the best thing about our program, Les, is that they come in and they start to learn how to manage their own schedule. They start to learn how to manage their time. Um, they start to learn that you know the, the, the four hours a week of skill instruction that we get in the fall is not going to make them a big leaguer. So if they want to be a big leaguer, they got to get in there on their own and put that extra time in. And we educate them on that and, and – um, I hope that we do a good job at that. And I think we do a good job at that. And that all starts with kind of Coach Meggs and his energy and expectations and, and willingness to show up every day uh, ready to work, man. Yeah, so, I mean, you touch on a lot of points there. And obviously Coach Meggs, you know, kind of lays the foundation, the, the leadership at the top. I'm curious to know what sort of things do you guys do to cultivate leadership from within the team? You know, generally you find – uh, you you hear that you know the best player on the team is the bet you know he's the leader uh, you know but I, I I've been on teams and, and I'm I'm fairly certain you may have been as well where you know the the best player isn't always the leader um, because of you know maybe different personality traits so what sort of things do you guys do at UW to cultivate leadership uh, within the program? Yeah, well we have you know we have our. We have our team captains, and and coach relies heavily on them um, to make sure that, you know, he'll involve them in decision makings from uh, the decision making process from discipline to, um, you know, how we're feeling, where our energy's at. So he really tries to empower those guys, uh, and then the leadership, <clears throat> the leadership for those guys, is obviously something that's earned, and the respect that they that they earn from their teammates, and that can come from. You know the guy on the bench that brings it every single day, uh, or or like you said, you know, could be the best player. Could, doesn't have to be the best player. So I think that empowering those guys and making sure that they do have a voice is the best way to create a, a culture and, a, and a, a situation where there's a lot of self policing going on. It's not it's not hey let's get into screaming matches every day and that might happen here and there or there might be um, you know some some hard feelings, but it's more so just a. a a level of expectation where you know that the guy standing next to you as a player um, expects a lot from you, and then if you don't, if you're not giving it, you're going to hear about it. And and you know, I think that that's how the players self-police themselves the best. And you know, I always say that, or I can always remember my experience as a player where um, 
you just didn't want to let the guys down that are standing next to you, man. And that that was in BP. That was a, a, you know, if we're doing a hit and run drill, that was during conditioning. Uh, if you wanted to give up, you just couldn't do it. You couldn't give up because the guys standing next to you weren't giving up. So when you create that, uh, it's a lot easier to have great leadership and it's a lot easier for your team to really uh, develop their own personality which is, I wasn't a part of it, but I know that the 2018 UW team that went to Omaha, um, you know, they had their own personality and coaches smart enough to, to let them ride with that if it's, uh, it's going to help us create the culture that we want. Yeah, that, that that's awesome, and I hear I hear your your son or daughter there in the background. I'm hearing mine through through my door as well here. So, uh, yeah. we're we're getting here towards the end, but but Ronnie, that that uh, you know the the points there that, that you touched about, you know the the self policing, right? And, and you know obviously that's that's goes to that taking a, you know, maybe an immature player or a young player, uh, you know, and turning them into a man, right? I mean, because ultimately as an adult, you've got to self-police yourself in a number of different uh, avenues. But I'm curious to hear your take on on that fine line between, you know, kind of pushing leadership onto players and then just letting them kind of develop into leaders you know, because you hear you hear a lot about it, right? There, there's some coaches that you know maybe have been somewhat successful or or you know not very successful. Who, you know, the knock on them is is you know they they try to force leadership, right? So how do you balance that? Where you 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 know you want guys to self police themselves and you want them to develop into leaders, but you don't want to force it upon guys. Yeah, I think that that's something. It's an it's another thing we have to realize as coaches is, no matter who we want to be the leaders or who we 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 have our will that we hey we really like this guy to step up. That's decided by the players um, and and on all reality. So um, the players are the ones who are gonna uh, earn the respect of each other, and they're ultimately gonna be the ones who decide who they listen to. So um, if you try to force something like that, you're gonna get a lot of guys in positions that you might think are leadership positions that nobody's listening to. So uh, we don't always know the pulse of um, every single thing that's going on when they're at home in their, you know, in their houses at night, you know, after practice and all that stuff's done. So uh, how they act when they're off the field is stuff that we don't always get to see. So we can't say that, Hey, this guy's got to be a leader because when he goes home, he's a jerk to everybody, you know, and and disrespectful and and doesn't clean up after himself or isn't a good roommate or whatever. Uh, so we don't get to see all that stuff all the time. So it's it's almost uh, we're not educated. We're ignorant to how they are when when we're not around. Uh, so we can't pick those guys. They have to kind of evolve and and decide for themselves. I think that every coach can say, you know, from when you guys step on campus and you might have seven to 10 new guys every year, uh, you know, the guy that you might've thought is going to take this team over and, and be a leader by the time the spring comes, he might not be even in the picture. And then a guy that you thought, Hey man, this guy just stays quiet and keeps to himself and works hard every day. By the time spring comes along, he might be the one speaking up in team meetings and saying, Hey, we need to improve on this and be better here. And, and we need to bring it a little bit better. Yeah, that that's awesome. And I, I want to shift gears a little bit, Ronnie and, and talk about the cancellation here of the spring season for you, you know, personally, uh, uh, you know, personally, and then professionally, what's been, what's been the most challenging thing for you to deal with, with the cancellation of the spring season? 
Well, I think that if you're in this profession, people that don't really understand what our day to day is like, uh, you're just so used to going. Uh, you're so used to doing to being busy all the time, whether it's working with the team and coaching, whether it's recruiting, whether it's scattering reports. Uh, so just going from having a lot of stuff to do and, and staying busy, which is kind of what we signed up for, to uh, essentially just trying to figure out a way, okay, how can we make our guys better? Uh, we're in a situation that is so new to all of us that um, there's a lot of discussion early on, like, hey, let's use this time as our advantage to make guys better and and uh, and figure out a way that we can use, use this as an opportunity as opposed to uh, just saying, hey, when we get back, we'll get back to work. So we've tried to do a great job with that. Uh, we have two hitters meetings every week that actually are are done now because we'll be in study week next week and then finals week because we are quarters, so we're not done with the quarter yet so um and we have two pitchers meetings and we have a team meeting every week and and my goal as a hitting guy during this time is to give them stuff that um hey how can i get better when i don't have a tee or a ball or a cage or someone to feed me front toss or someone to throw bp how can i get better and my job right now is to help those guys understand that okay well um you know for our team i put together a youtube a set of youtube clips to give them stuff that they can work on with their setup and stride and and try to um, have stuff that they can literally do in their bedroom at home uh, to, to create feel, to create the move that they want to make that doesn't even involve a ball. So, um, yeah, that's that's what we've tried to do, man, and and just make sure that with all this free time that we do have, you know, I've, we, we're so fortunate as a society to have uh, you know, all these podcasts and all this cool stuff to listen to and get better at and you know, trying to be involved in as many of those as I can uh, has been helpful and, and listening to people with different points of views has been helpful. So, yeah, just, you know, using it as an opportunity, man. And we've had some great conversations with our guys, Les, where um, we would never have had those conversations if this hadn't happened. So getting more into their brains and building more trust and understanding how each guy's thought process works has been has been the benefit of all this. And now... Uh, when we come back in the fall, I think I'm going to understand them better, each guy, and I'm going to uh, be able to give them better cues and, and really help them um, because we've spent a lot of time trying to get into their head. You know, you you talk there about making your, your current team better, but you're also, you know, trying to improve your team for the future as well, right? I mean, this is, you may not be able to be out at games to recruit, but I mean, you still have the opportunity to recruit. So what's that process been like during this? Yeah, well, we we feel like we have a really good base for where our future is with the guys that we have, um, you know, committed to the University of Washington. And, and a lot of that has to do with um, the hard work that we've been putting in, um, you know. So, I mean, Coach Cribby never stops. Uh, he's He's relentless. Um, and he and I don't have the same personality, but we work really well together and, uh, we've really benefit each other, um, in a lot of ways. So it's been awesome to get a chance to work with him. And, and, uh, you know, we feel like the future is really bright for you, Dub. Um, you know, if, if people go on your website and see the kinds of guys that we're committing from not only up in the Northwest, but throughout the country and, and the West coast and California, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be a force to be reckoned with moving forward. 
Yeah, that that. Do you think this the what what's the impact long term of of this cancellation? You know, on the college game. I mean, I it's a question I ask every coach on the podcast, and I you know I've had varying answers. So I'm curious to hear what your take is on what's just the the long term impact on the college game. You know, from this cancellation of the spring season, from guys being able to come back, from the draft being only five rounds. I mean, there's so many things going going on around college baseball, and it's not just, you know, hey, the season was lost. So I'm curious to hear what your take is on, on the long-term impact of this. Yeah, I'm concerned, man. I'm concerned when, you know, we see programs dropping baseball and, uh, you know, I hear about uh, about coaches having to take pay cuts and this is already almost an impossible profession to really get ahead in uh, already you know we ha- we have two coaches uh that are paid besides your head coach um so all the things that i feel like we've been fighting for as a community of coaches those are you know those are probably going to get even bounced back even farther unfortunately i, I really hope that that wasn't going to be the case but that's that's what my gut tells me um you know the third paid assistant and and potentially uh trying to get more scholarships and some of this stuff that we really want to fight for and we want to see happen uh, you know when when schools are cutting budgets and everybody across the board is having to tighten you know how they're spending their money it makes it a little bit more far-fetched to really see those things happening anytime soon. But the reality is that it's a great sport and, uh, you know, we, we provide such a great, uh, source of entertainment for people that come out and watch our level of, of baseball that, uh, we need to figure out how we can move the sport forward. Um, but, but it's tough because, you know, I'm the, I'm an administrator's son who is at a mid major, uh, with not a lot of resources and um, we have to be careful that we don't try to move the sport forward so fast that uh, it, it makes people drop baseball you know so that's I, I don't know how but I think the waters are muddy and I, and I hope that we can get back to some sense of normalcy you know soon because our country needs sports man um, there's there's a lot of people, and there's a lot of social issues and just things going on that in the, in the past, uh, sports has been such a binding and, and, and a way for the communities to come together. Um, and that's what we need right now. Uh, so, you know, kind of getting off topic, but my hope is that my hope is that we bounce back and we bounce back quickly before more programs have to stop, start cutting baseball. Um, I have so many good friends and, and young former players that are trying to get into this profession. And, um, you know, it's so difficult because unless you're willing to work for free for, you know, for some guys, it's five to 10 years, um, and literally have a side job to make things, to make ends meet, unless you're, you, you, you have the ability to do that. Uh, you can't even get into the profession. So we need more coaches. Um, but I, I'm afraid that this pandemic is going to set us back in that, in that aspect. Yeah. You know, that third paid assistant is, you know, was a really hot topic and it seemed like you said to have a lot of momentum, uh, you know, particularly going into this spring and after the ABCA conference. And, you know, that seems to be the one kind of hot topic, you know, hot button issue uh, with a lot of coaches that and the scholarships. Right. And, you know, but ultimately do you think 
What what changes do you think will will result from this? You know, a lot of guys have talked about more regionalized schedules and you know a lot of budgets being affected obviously by this and I'm curious to hear if if you think any changes outside of, you know, the the third paid assistant, the scholarship, you know, potentially the regionalized schedule, if any changes will come about, you know, that could you know, impact the game, the college game, either either positively or you know potentially negatively. Yeah, well, I hope any changes that affect us negatively are short term. Um, but you know, what the hard thing about all the regional stuff that everyone's talking about is, you know, if you're in the middle of Southern California and you have to stay within X amount of miles to play all your games, that's not very hard to do. Uh, you know, when I was you know, at, at a lot of those places when I was at Fullerton at LMU down there, we didn't, we didn't go midweek to other places. We didn't drive four or five hours to go to midweek games and, you know, not on the rig, not regularly at least. So, um, for us here, it's different. There just aren't as many schools to play up here. So what I think is going to happen most likely, and you know, this is a guess, but I think a lot more places are going to play. They're going to choose to play less games and maybe drop some midweek games. Um, just because, because it's a it's a way to save your budget a little bit so you know i i don't know i think that that's that's stuff that's just so hot right now and such a hot topic and every day i get an update you know uh from different people it could be they could be saying different stuff so but i think that there's a lot of places that are just going to decide to maybe cut out some of those midweeks as a way to save some travel money and um you know guys will end up playing less games uh because of that so that would be my guess but and as far as the other stuff, the third paid guy and more scholarships, I know that there, you know, there's a there's an argument out there to raise scholarships because of the situation with all the seniors coming back and the five round draft. Um, and uh, you know, we we feel like we're gonna we want to compete with anybody throughout the country. So you know, we're we're definitely gonna feel like we're we're gonna want to um, be able to do that if that's the rule that gets passed. But at the same time, we feel like we've recruited fairly responsibly and, and we're going to be OK if we don't get more scholarships. Um, and and we're going to have a team that's you know ready to run, make a run at a Pac-12 championship next year with the guys that we have recruited. Um, so but I also believe, you know, I would love to see uh, baseball get more scholarships for. For the kids, uh, what, what, what people outside this sport don't realize is that you know, most of the kids are still are still graduating with debt um, when they play this game. And even if they're really, really talented and deserve an opportunity to get their school paid for based off of their uh, accomplishments, uh, most guys still graduate with debt. And that's just that's so unique to our sport as opposed to a lot of the other sports, especially ones that um, have settings like Omaha and big time uh, fan fan bases. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic point that, you know, graduating with debt and it's it's a very real issue in college baseball. And I think that a lot of people don't understand that uh, and how the scholarships are broken up and, uh, you know, the percentages and, and things like that. I think, you know, a lot of parents and players, you know, at least early in their careers, their high school careers think that, oh, it's a full ride, you know, and it's like. You know, now the reality is that it, it simply is not a full ride in, in college baseball. Yeah. And we have to be like, that's another area we have to be responsible of is we have to educate the families when you say, you know, hey, we're going to 
we're going to give you a full scholarship. Well, if you're saying that when, and the underlying meaning is we're going to pay for your tuition, well, there's still a whole room and board check that we, is going to need to get cut. So and that somebody's going to have to pay that. So that, that falls on the families a lot of times. So, you know, I think that what we try to do and what, what schools should try to do, you know, being responsible is, is map it out for the families when you're talking to them about the scholarship offer and, and say, Hey, you know, this is, we feel this is what we can do. And, and, but this is what you're going to be left with and, and not try to slide anything, you know, and then all of a sudden the kid gets excited and two years later when he gets his NLI, his family realizes that he's on, you know, 42%. Yeah, that's a fantastic point, Ronnie. That, that, that was awesome. Great conversation, Ronnie. But before I, hey, before I let you go, we do the podcast rapid fire with coaches and it's just, you know, a, a kind of a fun way to end the show here. And, uh, you know, there's about a dozen or so questions here. Uh, first thing that pops into mind, just fire away. Don't spend too much time dwelling on it. So if you're game uh, and, and ready to go, I'm ready to go. Are you, go, are you good? Not bad kind of stuff, but I'm game. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, here we go. Small ball or gorilla ball? Uh, both. <laughs> <laughs> Country or classic rock? Country. Costco or Sam's Club? Costco. Easy. In and out or five guys? In and out. College football or the NFL? College. Trackman or Rapsodo? Trackman. Favorite vacation spot? Uh, Mexico. Cable or stream? Cable. Mac or PC? Mac. Best singer on the team? Me. <laughs> Best dancer on the team? Nick Roberts. Favorite stadium you've ever been in? Meritrade. Go-to song to sing in the shower? Something like that, Tim McGraw. Uh, favorite sports team? Rams. Wow, really? Don't uh, tell the- <laughs> Seattle, though. <laughs> Most memorable team you played on? Uh, 2004, Cal State Fullerton. Most memorable team you've been a part of as a coach? Probably the uh, 2012 Indiana State Sycamores. Awesome. Ronnie, man, I can't thank you enough for for coming on the podcast and breaking things down for us and, you know, and and taught really, I mean, open a conversation on recruiting and UW and and everything else, man. I, I really, really appreciate you taking some time. I, you know, Les, we, we appreciate what you guys do so much, man. You, you work as hard as anybody out there. And, uh, you know, the guys up here doing the same thing, Dan Jurek up here who runs Washington. So um, you, you guys are a great resource for us, and you provide a great service for these kids. And, um, you know, we're appreciative of that, of that as well. Awesome. I, I really thank you for saying that. And don't let DJ give you too hard of a time up there. <laughs> All right. I'll tell him he said hello to you. I want to thank University of Washington assistant coach Ronnie Prettyman for joining me on the podcast today. Be sure to check out prepbaseballreport.com for all your news and information. And until next time, we'll see you at the yard.